Hi everyone and welcome to Play Crush. It's Joe Murphy here. We have a really great episode for you this week. Owen Teal joined us in the studio talking about one of the greatest plays ever written. Owen is a Tony Award winning actor with basically the greatest voice in the world, which makes him the perfect podcast guest. Born in Glamorgan, Owen went on to train at the Guildford School of Acting. After graduating, he embarked on an astonishingly successful and exciting career. He made his television debut in The Mimosa Boys in 1984. In 1985, he appeared in the Doctor Who serial Vengeance on Varos as Maldak. His film debut was in War Requiem in 1989. He later appeared in Knights of God, Great Expectations, Boone, Robin Hood and Hunky Dory. His TV work includes such series as Dangerfield, Ballycus Angel, The Thin Blue Line, Belonging, Spooks and Murphy's Law. In 2011, Owen appeared as Sir Alistair Thorne in Game of Thrones, basically the biggest TV show in the world. In 2012, he played Di in the comedy drama series Stella and Robert Holland, the fictional UK Foreign Secretary in the drama series Kidnap and Ransom. He also played Chief Inspector Osborne in the BBC police drama Line of Duty. His theatre work is extensive and extraordinary. He's worked at the National Theatre, the RSC, the Donmar, the West End, Broadway, the Globe, the Royal Court and Theatre Cloyd. Owen is a very charming, very funny and very emotionally intelligent person and it was such a joy to talk to him about his journey into the industry and the amazing work he's done. Owen's play crush was Macbeth by William Shakespeare. The Scottish play, as it is superstitiously known, was first performed in around 1606, and it dramatises the damaging physical and psychological effects of political ambition on those who seek power for its own sake. A brave Scottish general named Macbeth receives a prophecy from a trio of witches that one day he will become King of Scotland. Consumed by ambition and spurred to action by his wife, Macbeth murders King Duncan and takes the Scottish throne for himself. He's then racked with guilt and paranoia, forced to commit more and more murders to protect himself from enmity and suspicion. He soon becomes a tyrannical ruler. The bloodbath and consequent civil war swiftly take Macbeth and Lady Macbeth into the realms of madness and death. Owen played the title role at Theatre Cloyd to great acclaim, and when you hear him talk about the play, it's easy to see why. So, without further ado, here is Owen Teal with Macbeth. Hello, Owen. Hello, Joe, and uh, hello, everybody out there. Yeah, hi. How's it going? How have you been? Yeah, pretty good. I um, I think that, you know, we, we, we all know what we're referring to, um, <laughs> the great lockdown. At first, <laughs> um, I was sort of enjoying the rest, to be honest. I guess it's a, quite a lazy streak in me. And then <laughs> the last couple of weeks, it has started to get to me, a bit of a existential angst and uh, <laughs> what is the meaning of all this and um, you know we've never spent so much time together as a family intensely my, my daughter's come home from university and um, and then uh, my younger daughter one of those who couldn't sit her A-levels and there's this oh, wow. all kind of at sea feeling going on and um, and and sort of pouring over things and lots of introspection and yeah i can't wait to get out 
<laughs> and um, as an actor, I mean, is that like, are, are, is it starting to reemerge now, the industry? Like, are you, is that starting to pick back up again? Well, um, yeah, Do you feel I, like a, a wake up is imminent? Yes, I do. I think the forces at play are huge, you know, with uh, there's a lot of money that will, will kick it off. I mm. hear about the pressure in the theatre, um, you know, people determined to open their West End theatres. Uh, <laughs> it's unthinkable that it's all closed. But, but in the, in the uh, filming world, which I think is marginally um, more realistic to be opening soon, um, mm. I keep getting regular updates from... Uh, I'm back involved with uh, Line of Duty. I did the first season of that. And so there's something ongoing there. And I, they, they, they seem to be gearing up now to pick up where they left off. And the same with um, A Discovery of Witches down in Cardiff, uh, Bad Wolf production. Um, nothing is certain, as we all know at the moment, but I'm hearing a lot of uh, very energetic and um, determined things. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see. It has been a sort of, a, a, I mean, obviously it's kind of horrendous, but looking for those positives, I found like, seeing how people have reacted with exactly say determination and energy and creativity to get around the problem. I, I found quite inspiring and I'm also completely obsessed with line of duty. So that is very wow. exciting. Well, there you are. Yeah. Yeah. You're not alone there. A lot of people are back. <laughs> the word uh, seeps out slowly that, you know, return of a, a bad character <laughs> seemed to get away with it in episode one. Uh, it's the first season. Yes. Oh, God, how brilliant. And I think you're right. If it, it feels like TV and film can get up and running a bit quicker than theatre can, because I, I suppose you don't have to have the audience live at that moment. Do you know, I thought it was funny. We did. The, I would have been doing a play at the moment at the Donmar, which was a co-production with Theatre Cloyd and um, wonderful double bill uh, contingency plan, which um, is about a disaster that's going to hit the country, you know, and uh, <laughs> which was it was the, the, the sort of surreal timing of it as the play was was trying to get people to understand this isn't this isn't a, a flash in the pan it's not a joke it's actually happening this oh, is awesome it's all but that was about the um environmental disaster but the effect was pretty much the same as what we were literally living through and we did do a zoom rehearsal of that we did do um a little event where we did excerpts from it with question and answer uh for people who you know, back the the Donmar and Theatre Cloyd, and uh, and I loved it. And it was very weird that at the end, every time we were doing um, that, we seemed to manage to really communicate with each other and with the audience, if, if that's possible. Um, <laughs> and so, when you finished and you said goodbye and you waved to each other down this Zoom meeting, I felt a real <laughs> sadness, you know, a real wistful feeling as I. Went back to the kitchen and poured another cup of coffee. <laughs> and said, Darling, I was marvellous in that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a brave new world out there. A brave new world. Are you doing something similar? Have you been doing Zoom work, Joe? Yeah, yeah, we've done. So uh, at Sherman, we've been doing, um, uh, it's called Interval, our project, um, which is sort of, uh, we, we've been sort of considering this an interval and that we'll be back soon. Um, so we, we did this project called 10 Deg, which was um, 
10 uh, new five-minute monologues by 10 writers performed um, by 10 actors. They just self-filmed them um, yeah. and then we could upload them, which was great just to get some new writing moving and to hear our writers respond. Some yeah. about our situation and some, you know, completely nothing to do with it. Um, and then Gary Owen donated two short plays called Mom and Dad um, that Superb Lynn Hunter and Michael Sheen uh, filmed for us. Right. Uh, so we had those out. And then a lot of the other work has just been about, I suppose, trying to keep connected with the community, um, keep connected with our artists, you know, just kind of keep those doors open because, I don't know, you can't solve the problem, can you? But maybe loneliness, anxiety, isolation, those are things that we, you know, we can make a dent in. And I always think theatre is a, a particularly well placed to make a dent in those things. Well, it's what they are. They, they fundamentally, it is about a shared experience. Mm. You're not alone. You enter a room, whether you're the audience or the part of the cast. You, you are. You're working at it together as a commitment. Mm. You, um, you know, you buy a ticket and you say, "I'm up for this," and <laughs> you know, hopefully, the people on on the other side they've done their work and they're saying, "We're ready to share this." Think about this. Isn't life a little bit like this? And isn't it absurd and funny and tragic all at the same time yeah yeah it's a very beautiful description of theater that's exactly yeah. it um mm. well let's i mean okay i mean it's interesting you know you're working on the continuity plan you're at the donmar mm. doing tv series i mean a sort of a, extraordinary career an extraordinary level of success it would be great to maybe just kind of roll back and figure out like where this started for you and, yeah. and what your journey through it has been mm. um and, and how, how you got into acting and performing? Well, it's a, it's a good question. Somebody asked me recently, and I said, the older I get, and the, the more this question comes up, the less I know the answer to it. The further, <laughs> the further I get away, and I, I and therefore look back, I think, how on earth did you get through that? And from there to there? <laughs> you know, it's like people say to you, you know, about careers and decisions you made. Yeah, sure, there are times when you're you're fortunate enough to have a decision to make, but a lot of the time, it's what comes up. Mm. It's just you do you make the best of. Well, that was my attitude. You know, I came in, I came from a very naive place into this world. You know, I was studying maths, physics, and chemistry, and um, couldn't stand it. Just couldn't take it, and did a runner from Kenfergill Comprehensive School one Easter and uh, one teacher tried to help me understand and try to understand me why, I, you know, just couldn't, couldn't knuckle down and do it. And uh, instead of trying to hit it out of me, you, you know, though back in the day, there, there was quite a lot of that uh, <laughs> corporal punishment. I think <laughs> Free for all was more. Uh, anyway, <laughs> Uh, let's 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 not you know go on about that too much. It's the, that was a different time, as they say. <laughs> so he said, you know, look, they're they they they're reinventing Barry Island. It's it's no longer going to be just um, a fairground. It's going to be a pleasure park. <laughs> I remember these two words: a pleasure park. <laughs> wow. He said, you know, there's there's Disneyland in America and. They're going to make this happen in Barry, And I was 25 <laughs> miles away going, shit, man, if that's what's happening, I'm getting that. I'm in. So that was it, you know. Out, out with pure and applied mathematics and in with getting dressed up as a bear on the weekend. 
I'm going around Barry Island Fairground, um, which had a sign above it saying Pleasure Park now. Um, but still being beaten up by kids and, in fact, on one occasion set fire to in my bear club. Yeah, it was quite something. But I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I uh, a load of guys then joined me, and um, I guess I've, I'm sorry if they messed up their A levels as well, which um, <laughs> generally speaking they did. But they fought back <laughs> in other ways and sorted it out along the way. But I can't believe how back in those days, you know. And then I just happened to there was some there was a, a there were two drama students um, teacher training. Um, was what, really what they were in, in dance and, and drama. And they were on summer uh, work by then, you know, to just earn a few bob. And they were dressing up as the, I think it was the dog and the, and the rabbit. And uh, <laughs> they, um, there was a sort I mean, of... Uh, <laughs> was, it, was it like Disneyland? Like, did you feel it? When did they achieve Disneyland status, did you find, when you were there as, oh, as, as a bear oh, with your dog and rabbit? It was... Uh, Oh, there's many stories. There's many, many stories that that would I don't think you would associate with Disneyland, or Disneyland would <laughs> not be putting their name to things that were going on inside a bear costume. And uh, I got sacked once as the bear because I was <laughs> on the on the Ferris wheel going round and round rather than entertaining kids. I couldn't be asked, and I was going round and round. And, you know, those wheels, they, the big wheels stopped to let people on. And it took ages for me to come down. I was at the top and I could see my employer furious waiting for me at the bottom. And you could see him weighing it up, how he was going to approach this. But he, his anger got the better of, him, better of him. And as I got off the wheel, he just came up to me red-faced. And he knew where my face was, which was sort of in the neck. There was a sort of little sort of gauze bit that I could see out of. You know, it was huge. The bear's head was... No, I'm six foot three, and so he must have been touching about seven foot six, this bear. And you've got this little guy, furious, screaming into the neck of the bear. You're fired! (laughs) Get off my park! (laughs) I just sauntered off and uh, got changed and... uh, and then there was the rest of the animals went on strike and said, no, 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 he deserves second chance. <laughs> Give the bear, Give the bear, the bear a chance. And um, I was back on Barry the Bear. I was the eponymous Barry the Bear. Oh, they couldn't just get rid of you then. This that, I mean, oh, that, was, that, that was the eponymous that. character. Come yeah. on. Yeah. I was, you know, you had to be tall to wear that. I tell you now, the fiberglass <laughs> head on it. And kids used to just beat me up and that. And I. I'd, I'd somehow turn around and catch them just in time. And especially if they were very young, it was very easy to sort of bring the head down, this huge head that was above my head, and you'd smack a kid on the, on the head with it. And scream. And then, and then his mother would say, what are you doing? The bear's just trying to say hello to you. <laughs> Look at him. He's waving at you. He's smiling. The bear is smiling. <laughs> Oh my god! Yeah, and anyway, these 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 girls said you've got to get out of here. You've got to go to you've got to go to drama school. That's where you belong. And it's it was a light bulb moment, you know. And I I had to apply. I I hadn't done enough work. I didn't know any plays. I had to 
get hold of speeches. I needed experience, so I went back to Porthcawl and joined an, a great amateur group, the Porthcawl Little Theatre. And um, there's a guy in Wales who was, who was acting in that company. He was a teacher, and he was a great mentor and continued to be for many years, called Roger Burnell. And uh, he, he, gets a lot, he gets a lot of great big shout-outs from, from people, Michael Sheen and uh, Rob Brydon, after me, you know, they, they, even though they weren't at his school, I don't think, um, his, his reputation spread in a good way around uh, Glamorgan as the man to go to if he wanted to be an actor. He's a great guy. He's still doing his stuff, as far as I know. Um, and so he helped me. He showed me some speeches, and I got involved in a couple of plays, amateur dramatics, and and I got in. I just I just applied to the school that these two girls were in, which was Guildford, which actually you know was um, and I think still is really notable for uh, musical theatre. Mm. But I wasn't um, necessarily into that. But the fact that somebody gave me a chance. You know, I, I I bit their hand off, as they say, um, in accepting it, and and I got there, and I I I worked very hard, I played very hard, and um, um, yeah, you know, but even once you're in it, it's like that doesn't guarantee you anything. Looking back, and then it was an extraordinary thing happened when I came out, and um, because of the musical theatre, I'd done a lot of dance by this point, and I. I managed to get into the chorus of Cabaret, the musical, you know, the wonderful um, musical, um, down in Plymouth. And I was dancing and doing all sorts of things <laughs> that uh, were sort of barely legal. And then um, <laughs> I, I, I survived that. And, and just at that time, there was, this, is, this would be 1984, it was two years after the Falklands War. And the BBC Wales were going to do a, uh, a, a TV film, you know, I think they called them Play for Today back then. Um, and it was called The Mimosa Boys, and it would be about four Welsh guards, representative of different areas of, um, of Wales, who find themselves going down on the QE2 to the Falkland War. Um, it was a huge break, and I done nothing you know I had no experience it was all on audition and I had audition after audition but I, the fact that I'd heard about it was because one of my mates at home his his brother was was um was brought in as a an authority you know he'd been at the Falklands War he was a Welsh guard there so it was very much based on his story and so I knew that they were doing this and I was able to you know hit it and go in and say, please, 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 you've got to give me a chance. Give me, <laughs> give me a chance. Because, you, you know, they had to be young as well. And so that was a huge break to get that, the Mimosa Boys. Um, and then it didn't lead to anything or, you know, there was, I didn't launch into a huge uh, career as uh, a, a TV actor, really. I got bits and bobs and I had an agent and, and I just didn't say no very much. I just realized that I could learn from just about anything and everything. I hadn't been spoiled in that way. Um, it was all fascinating to me. And I, you know, I just thrived on the creativity that happened in a room. 
you look around you and you think, well, it's not a bad way to spend your day. There's some really talented people in this room, and this is who I'm stuck with. Um, and, 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 and that is a sort of core value stuck with me, actually. I often do that. I often look around and think, well, it could be a lot worse, couldn't it? <laughs> great people in this room. Um, I, then, I then just fought hard and went up for things and didn't get them and got some bits and bobs. And, and then another big break happened that somebody, you know, you, you, your face just fits. It was a whole thing. Um, it was a guy called Rob Bettinson who uh, I'd had this idea to um, adapt the books of, uh, well, he, I think he only did one in the end, of Catherine Cookson, which were, I think still are tremendously popular. Mm. They get labelled as romantic. And they, yes, they are romantic at their heart, but they're deeply gritty and real and, and wonderful um, books. And there was one called The Fifteen Streets, and I did that as a play for him. We toured. And then it was on in the West End and then they wanted to make a film of it. And, you know, I hadn't really done enough sort of big leading parts on television. Uh, but Catherine Cookson just thought I was John. She's, you know, this, this, this character that, and she was still alive and they wanted to make, and she wasn't sure that she ever wanted it to be done on television. And then she said, the boy has to play the part. So <laughs> I was, I didn't know this. You know, I was coming out of my my dressing room after the show every night, and there would be TV producers wanting to take me for a drink. Oh, we've done <laughs> You're marvelous. And I was thinking, oh, this is great. This is, you know, <laughs> no idea that Catherine had said, you know, that she was very fond of what I did in it. And um, so then I did that, and that was that was a huge thing. That's back in the day. That was ITV, Sunday night. I don't think we had... Um, what did we have by then? Did we have Channel 4? We may have had Channel 4, but certainly not 5 and not the myriad channels you now have. And I think it did something crazy, some figure like 16, 17, 18 million people watched wow. it. And so it was one of those, you know, you go out one day, and I was filming on another job. It was in Liverpool when it was broadcast. And I remember being out and about in Liverpool and, the next day getting up and going out. And my life was sort of different. Everybody pointing at you on the street and saying, you're the guy, you're the guy, you're the guy. <laughs> so wow. You, you then, and none of it makes any more sense than not getting the job or, you know, you learn that. It's, you know, these are the things you've heard people say, you know. It's like the Rudyard Kipling poem, isn't it? You know, if. Mm. None of it is going to be the answer. You know, the, the, the answer is within you, how you, how you handle it. And you, you must equally distrust the opinions of others and also enjoy them at the same time, in a heartbeat. Say thank you, even if somebody's slagging you off. Thank you so much. <laughs> and, um, and if you can do that, then you're probably made of the right stuff to, 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 to be, you know, to be an actor. Mm. So, um, yeah. so was that a before and after moment for you then with 15 Streets in oh, terms you, of yeah. yeah that changed the game for you and then I did a film of uh, Robin Hood I played Will Scarlet with uh, Patrick Bergen and Uma Thurman as Maid Marian and Absolutely I was a great, great bunch of people in that it's a sort of European 
take on it. It came out the same time as the Kevin Cosner one, so you know it 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 didn't make it in the cinema very far, I don't think. But I think it did well on television thereafter. It was that was great. But then I just by this point I would I'd fallen in love with the idea of going to the Royal Shakespeare Company. And they'd come, you know, Adrian Noble had asked to see me and um And what what so how would you fall in love? Like what what is it that had... I think it was at that stage it was um what had happened was I was at drama school and I was we would um we were doing um much ado about nothing and mm-hmm. uh a friend who was in that that year with me, Richard Moat, he lived in Warwickshire and was, I think he's fairly keen to say, obsessed with the Royal Shakespeare Company. <laughs> longed to be part of it. You know, he'd grown up with it. And so one weekend we went back from Guildford and stayed with his parents and went to see a couple of shows. And, you know, I saw it for the first time. And this play I was trying to understand, I watched it and, you know, it was Sinead Cusack and... Uh, and Derek Jacobi. Oh my God! Um, wow. And and Derek Jacobi as Benedict. He, that thing of being an audience and being in the gods, which you always hear people say, you know, you're young, you have no money, and you're in the gods, and yet you feel he's speaking to you, and you understand every word he's saying. Mm. His ability with the verse and and to look at the audience and just like he's talking to a mate, and you know. Mm-hmm. I do much wonder that one man seeing how much another man is a fool when he dedicates his passions to love <laughs> will, after he hath laughed at such shallow follies in others, become the argument of his own scorn by falling in love. And he's, I thought this guy, he's just talking to me. He's in a bar. And he's, <laughs> and he's such a man is Claudio. Oh, you know, And he's telling me about this guy who's fallen in love who's like, yeah, and he's describing it, and, I, and it's suddenly, you know, you come out of it and you go, "I don't want to go back. I want to stay. <laughs> I want to. I don't want to go back in reality. I want to stay here." So that was it. Yeah, I was smitten from that that point. Yeah, those mm. few plays I saw. That would be nineteen eighty three, I think. Yeah, wow. Stratford. Yeah, but you know, I was completely screwed up with the idea of what it was to be an actor as well. And I loved that. The idea of, you know, the one was living in, in, in Stratford in a sort of hayloft above the inn <laughs> with fresh horses. We ride at dawn. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I, this image, you know, of, of, of being a, you know, the swashbuckling actor. <laughs> A vagabond and a peddler of bombast, as Absolutely. they say in, uh, in Shakespeare and Love. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah, and it was a bit like that when I got there, you know, the dirty duck. <laughs> to close at 11, but there was a sort of nod and a wink and you, you, you stayed beyond and, and there was nothing else to do, you know, you just caroused the night long. <laughs> oh, gosh, and misquoted Shakespeare and, and the other poor po- poet that... Came within your grasp. <laughs> yeah, terrible. So, and how did that work? Were you saying Agent Noble had he he'd seen you, had he, and then asked you in because Agent Noble was running the RSC at that time, was he? Yeah, I think he was having difficulty. He wanted to cast um, his hotspur, and I don't know, you know, why 
I think it, 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 it's a perennial problem there to to get people to, on the one hand, to to commit for two years. The contract was wow. But I I I just knew that I that I would be a better actor as well if I could work hard when I was there. And I did. I turned up to class. You know, I might have been a bit hungover, but I would turn <laughs> up to John Barton, and he would unpick mysteries of verse and say do you realize why this bit is blank first do you realize why this is prose do you realize why this is a rhyming couplet do you understand it as a piece of music and then he would he would equally say i i, I adore acting whatever you want to do to characterize to own this to inhabit it is fine with me but there is another world that is going on and that is the understanding of the way this has been written and if you can combine the two of them you will have such power at your at your uh, at your at your fingertips as you as you walk out there. And uh, I I I was I loved it. I loved that period. And Cicely Berry the same. Wonderful teachers. I mean, amazing um, to be that like they're, they're legends. You know what I mean when you say those yeah. names. They're like proper proper legends. So amazing to have been there at that time. Deeply eccentric, not on only on nodding acquaintance with reality, you know, <laughs> what's going on on a day to day basis. <laughs> Famous stories of 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 John, and he um, he'd been a smoker. He wasn't a smoker when I knew him, but he'd um, he'd given up, and he, he he had sort of all sorts of um, things to try and deflect from the fact that he wanted to smoke, and. Coffee, you know, a lot of coffee would be drunk and chewing up. And he used to he used to put nicorette, I think it was called, gum in his mm-hmm. to to give him a nicotine hit. And he would just be this ball of gum in his mouth, and it would just keep adding. <laughs> and you know, us in the real world, we're going. You cannot put any more gum in your mouth. There is there is no like comet inside your your head. <laughs> It would explode, and it's made of nicorette, and it's going to go everywhere if you carry on putting it in. And simultaneously drinking coffee, and you're thinking, how can you drink coffee beyond that? And then the famous one, of course, is he used to rock in his chair, and he would be explaining something, and he would rock, and the and the chair legs, the front legs, would come on into the air and back down again. And you think, he's going to go over in a minute. And on one occasion, he lifted up, and he lost his balance a bit, and as he sort of re- regained his balance, the front leg of the of the chair went into the coffee cup. And, you know, the whole thing is now that there's a room full of people riveted now, <laughs> standing up, not listening to a word he's saying really. And then and then to and then to take it on to the, the next level of eccentricity, <laughs> pick, bending down to pick up the mug, not understanding why it won't Never mind how, how hard he folded it. It ain't coming up because the leg of the chair is inside the mud. So he lets go, carries on talking, only to return to try and pick it up again. <laughs> Never looking down to see. And, but rather than going, I can't cope with this, I'm a sort of person who goes, oh, I, I don't want to go back to reality either. <laughs> This is just fantastic. <laughs> oh, I love, I loved all that. Yeah. 
drink. And had you had you been into Shakespeare before? Like you said, you're doing a bit of drama school, but like, did did the RSC change that relationship with those plays? Yeah, it did. Yeah, it um, hugely because I had big, ch- you know, a lot of people go there and have to work up, and I was thrown in, and I was playing Mark Antony and Julius Caesar, and so you know, wow. you, you know, some of the most famous lines in in the English language are 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 given to that character. Yeah. And, that's huge. And and you know, they 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 had the wherewithal to say, okay, we'll get experts in. Okay, so we're gonna get a speech. There's a guy, um Max, I can't remember his surname now, and he'd written a book and he'd he'd been a speechwriter and he'd trained Margaret Thatcher in the art of rhetoric and the understanding of how to sway people to your to your thinking, not to overcomplicate your speech, to use the rule of three, you know, all this, um, all these tricks. And he knew them all. He wrote a book on it, Our Master's Voices. Um, oh, wow. It might be Atkinson. Max, Max Atkinson. And um, so they brought him in. And, you know, we had a morning with this guy. And you could see every trick that is still employed by speechwriters is in that speech. And he said, if you look at the play, Brutus addresses the crowd and everything he says has content that has responsibility and a new dawning for the Republic about we killed Caesar because we, because we love him, not because we hate him, but we love the Republic more. And, mm-hmm. we, you know, we cannot have this, this sense of a despot or a king or power crazy. We, we must form this republic. And then Mark Antony gets up and says, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. He, he, he does not, he makes no attempt to make sense in a way. He doesn't tell people to think. He tells them to feel. How does he feel? Eh? Ah, well, you know, I'm just saying he was a friend to me and Oh, and there's that time he gave a load of money away and all the public parks that he opened that everybody... Anyway, anyway, anyway. <laughs> you know, and these guys, they know what they're doing and they say, you know, he was ambitious and, and they're, on, they're all honourable men, so it must be... And he, he does nothing but sow seeds of doubt and then inflame those with passion and he, all the time is saying, you don't want to think about this, you don't want to read a 99-page dossier on this. This is how it feels, isn't it? This is how mm. it feels for a man to be stabbed in the back. And he, you know, he, he incites this riot and and people just go crazy. And you see it happen so many times in the intervening time. Um, you know, that's the thing is if Shakespeare was really just isolated and esoteric and it didn't bear any relevance to your life, you didn't see it going on, it wouldn't be nearly as potent. Mm. But, you know, and those are the things that 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 I really um, got, yeah, fell in love with. You know, and obsessed the times, and, and notably Mac- Macbeth. You know, that's the play that I have to talk about, really. Well, that's, I mean, what a perfect link um, yeah. to your play crush today, Macbeth. Yeah. Um, I mean, so talk to us. I mean, when did your love affair with that play begin? Well, I played it at drama school. They gave me a big, big break there and said, right, we're going to do Macbeth, and it's you. 
Wow. I didn't really know much about it. I didn't understand the form it was written in. I didn't understand. Um, I didn't understand very much, and <laughs> I just went at it with all <laughs> the guns blazing and with a great, which I've always had a, a tremendous sense of throwing yourself in at the deep end, all mm. down and um, instinctively, and then it's been proven that. You know, rehearsal rooms are places to make mistakes, to try mm-hmm. things, to create a, a relationship of trust with a director and your fellow people that you can try things and now's the time to get them wrong. And you can learn so much by getting things wrong, mm-hmm. really committing to something and going, well, that didn't work, did it? <laughs> there was something in it, actually. You know, there's something in there. Let's have a look at that. And and, and, and then working at it. Um, so it was... It had gone very well at uh, at drama school, and it's it's short and powerful, but it did set off uh, a little bit of an obsession with the play, and I've watched it many many times in different versions. And I'd say, really, as much as it's a play crush, it's it's a sort of bête noir. I find it a very dangerous piece, mm. not for the kind of reputation of it being a dangerous play, which I think it is. It, it brings about um, a terrible sense of violence that the play needs, but it has to be controlled because we're only acting. But it, <laughs> it, it does open that, and the, that's what you're bringing into the, into the room. And um, I think that the, the reason it's a bit of a bête noire as well is that I'm very, it's very rare that I'm fully satisfied when I watch it and when mm. I've made it. Um, it's, and I don't fully understand what it is that I'm, that I'm looking for. But I do know that to keep searching that pursuit of um, your own truth in it is is really all that you need to do. People get from it what they will. You can't control. You know, there's there is no perfect production. Mm. Um, the things you know, I mean, stop me. You'll have to stop me. The things that are about <laughs> it, are, you know, it's short. The play is a tragedy. Why is it called the tragedy of Macbeth? Why isn't it just a gore fest? Why isn't it a horror film, you know, mm. the, uh, Elizabethan age? It's, it can only be a tragedy, I think, if if he and, and her, well, their relationship, Lady Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, mm-hmm. if, if they had made different decisions, if they'd had the ambitious thoughts but continued to be great, upstanding pillars of the of the community. Mm. Um, well, he's more than that; he's a hero. You know, the thing starts. Scotland is under siege from the Vikings, and he, the Norwegian lords, and he is able to kill on behalf of his country to save his country from invasion. And in the descriptions at the beginning, a lot of it is to do with that it was not looking good until 
Macbeth, <laughs> almost single-handedly, and you know, unseeming a man from the nave to the chops, and so he's able to, to do acts of tremendous brutality. But morally, you'd probably say he was a hero because mm-hmm. the country is being invaded by a very dark, evil force, and he's resisting that. And so you you have somebody that could have been living an honourable life and loved as a hero, but something in his flawed makeup makes him agree um, to with himself, with the dark side of himself and with his wife to take the matter into their own hand and kill somebody that is standing in their way to the great power that he believes he deserves. And yet he knows it's wrong. And he, I think he knows that he doesn't deserve it just by being this great hero. And yet he cannot stop himself ultimately in doing it. And once he takes that step, it's the trauma of it, the post-traumatic stress of it, then is too much for him. It's too much for their relationship. They tear each other apart. And eventually, he, he does not care one jot whether he lives or dies. And it's a deeply tragic portrayal of a, of a human life. And it's dark and it gets me. And the form of it, when the speeches come, the equivocating that goes on, you know, it's like this, it cannot be good, it cannot be ill. You know, mm. well, if it's ill, then why is it giving me earnest of a great success commencing in a truth? I am thing of Cordo. Look, it's, it's, it's true, you know, and trying to justify it. And then, but yeah, but if, if good, then why does, you know, do I yield to that image that doth unfix my hair and make my seated heart? He's already contemplating. He knows that he's got to kill somebody. Now, there's one, one of the things in there, and I wanted to ask you, if you do you know the play well, Joe? Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> hearing you speak, clearly not as well as you. Uh, but yes, no, I do know it pretty well. Yeah, it's a, a, similar to you. It's a play I've always been a bit obsessed with. Yeah, you see... There is this moment in the play, and it's, it's not really marked. And when we did it at Theatre Cloyd, Terry was fantastic. We talked about this. Terry Hans directed it, and um, he was just—he was just marvelous. It was—it's the per- I don't know why he hadn't done it before. It's a perfect play for him. I think he knew it was difficult. Um, and it is this that the three—the three witches tell him he's—he's he's going to be king. Macbeth, all hell. Mm-hmm. And so that's fate, okay, is saying you're gonna be you're gonna be king. Why doesn't he just wait? <laughs> yeah. Because the king, Duncan, upon meeting uh Macbeth and Banquo in the field, says, Thanks guys for what you've done, it's been just wonderful couldn't have done it without you and 
By the way, everybody, I announce the Prince of Cumberland is my son, um, Malcolm. And you go, and that's it. So really, that is a huge moment, because when you research it, it wasn't automatic at the time, the hereditary line. There was, it wasn't automatic that the son would become king. It would be the most deserving person. So, you know, there would be, it would be plausible for somebody who has pretty much single-handedly saved the nation to think, well, it's got to be me, isn't it? Mm. This is my, and I accept it and um, the responsibility of it, but it's me. And then this speech is made and he goes on, and I name Malcolm as the next in line. And it's at that moment that something snaps in him and says, not having that, <laughs> not having that. And then he checks himself and, and this thing starts like a seesaw of, if I did it, if it was, you know, if it were done, winter's done, then it's well, well, it were done quickly, you know. Why not? Bring it on. Let's do it. If it's done, it's done, it's done. But then he knows it isn't. Can't be like that. Can't be, you know, if I do this. No, no, there, there's going to be things to answer for this. I'll never get away with it. And he knows it, and yet still ultimately does it. He kills a man lying in his bed. So when you do the play, that is a very difficult thing to mark. And yet if you labor the play too much at that point, you lose the flow of it. And it is that the, the events, they unfold slightly quicker than you, than you can grasp. And I think that mm. is part of what the play, uh, that you have to achieve with the play, that it's, slight, it's happening slightly faster than, than <laughs> anybody can control. It's already out of control. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so from that, am I right in having understood this, that the witches don't actually tell him he has to kill Duncan? No. That's his interpretation. That's right. So that, I mean, that's just so interesting, isn't it? In terms of like Shakespeare grappling with that human nature of, it's like, I remember there's this experiment where they, um, there's, there's like, they leave people in a room saying there's going to be an experiment with, um, uh, like stale donuts mm. and they're like um, don't eat those uh, and if you don't eat them we'll, we'll top them up with fresh ones and people almost always eat them um, yeah. because like once it's in front of you it, it just like the, the, the propulsion in kind of the human psyche seems to just not be able to stop you uh, yeah. and although donuts are a far cry from killing someone it, it, it feels like there's a genius in Shakespeare isn't there to like just crack open what it is to be a human being by saying you just put this thing in front of us and we do all the rest of it. Completely. I think I became too obsessed when I was first playing him to with that thing of him being sort of whiter than white at the beginning, you know, and then mm. black and black because I think it is in there and that is the point. And I, I, the, the famous one, which you can get um, a recording of, uh, it's before it was before my time, I didn't didn't see it in the theatre, was uh, Ian McKellen and Judy Dench, mm. directed by Trevor Nunn. And um, Ian, in that, certainly has a wickedness that's possible that surfaces. 
and it's restrained by his, um, I guess, his his conscience and his his sense of humanity at the beginning that that is that it's in balance. And but once it gets old, the temptation, as you say, it's the temptation of it rather than I have to do it. It's a sense of duty. It's the temptation. Mm. I could just do it now. I can just do it. I can walk up the stairs. He'd never hear me. I can go in. You know, the, mm. the next sound he makes will be his last. Yeah. For, when we were working on it, I remember Terry Hans saying to me, he said, you're approaching this part from, from your point of view, which is quite right. That's what you have to do as an actor. But I know that I know you well enough now that you believe in the intrinsic goodness of people and that it's their nurturing that makes them go wrong. You're one of these people. <laughs> and I don't. He said, I, if anything, believe in the dark, visceral survival at all cost um, that's at the center of life. And that nurturing and empathy come much later, that the raw animal will allow some something to fall, would sooner tread and kill something in order to live. There's a darker starting place, um, which, as I say, I think Ian really had in that um, in the recording that I've seen of of that production. So yeah. a play that does that, that makes you sit in a room and really think about what life means to you is, um, is not a waste of time. Yeah. <laughs> because you know, your, your, your life is full of relationships with family and children and other people and trying to, trying to make sense of uh, existence. So this has been a great play for me to, to really think about. I, find, I also find it so interesting that so much of your thought is all in that decision moment, like mm. right at the top of the play, mm. um, and that that murky ground mm. um, seems to be really fascinating to you. Uh, uh, um, mm. And what's the decision made? It's obviously still like a really engaging play and really interesting, and all the events unfold. But mm. um, in terms of for you as an actor, maybe getting into it like that gray area that it seems like in a way you have to negotiate through your whole life right like we are always yeah. presented with these kind of gray areas or moments and yeah <clears throat> i just find it really interesting that that's been that's your way in that's the part of the play that really talks to you and i think that i find that interesting when you talk about your life a bit and your career and the plays you like mm. um the sort of devil in your eye feels like something mm. maybe that's always been there for you or that you're always aware there's this other side to your nature. Yes. Um, yes. And this play seems to force you to engage with that in some way. That's right. It's not altogether comfortable thing to do. <laughs> um, revealing. Yeah. Very yeah. revealing. Yeah. Um, yeah. It very quickly, all that, you know, the decision, and then once it's done and then, and then he, he can't rest, he can't sleep you know and neither of them can and um and he 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 becomes darker and 
darker it becomes. Um, he has further to, to fall than she does. Because mm. she takes her own life, I suppose. She she realizes sooner than he does that there's there's no joy to be found now. Mm. We're not going to get anything out of this now. And that is sad from the from the people they were at the beginning of the play, I suppose. This it's Definitely. tragedy. It's tragedy of Macbeth. Yeah. Yeah, I love that exactly as you said. Like. I mean, yeah, of course, because in my head it's just called Macbeth, but of course you're right, it's called The Tragedy of Macbeth. And mm. uh, and I love it because that uh, speaks to a fall, doesn't it? And a flaw, which is very yeah. human, as opposed to a gore fest, which feels like it's not yeah. human. And did you have any, like when you were on stage and, and playing this, is there, was there any moments, is there a moment in the play that you always thought, man, I can't wait to get to that point? Like playing that bit yeah. is like just where it's at. Yes, there was... Um... Something that I could bring to it. I'd seen, you know, some of the early productions I'd seen. I thought, I don't believe this guy really is a warrior. That's mm. a that's a tricky thing to get, you know, that you get all these qualities, the ability to remember the lines. And, <laughs> and also somebody who's best suited to wielding a two-hand sword. <laughs> and unseeming somebody from the nave to the chops. Unbelievable <laughs> in that. And, and Terry and I, we worked on this thing that... Um, had happened by chance in in rehearsals where he starts to hallucinate, as you know, at the mm. banquet about uh, his erstwhile friend that he's just had murdered and um, conjures up the ghost. Now, whether it is the play produces the ghost and, you know, the witches are in control or whether this is brought about as a psychological... Um, play you know that it's all from within his imagination that's gone running riot does it you know he's the only one who sees the ghost is the ghost do you have the ghost on stage and when we did it the sense of of Macbeth begging the ghost to be real approach thou like the the rugged Russian bear be anything that's real that I can fight as opposed to this specter mm. And the chair, the empty chair, or is somebody sitting in it? And it was empty in our in our case. And, and I remember getting a bit carried away in rehearsal and breaking the chair. <laughs> and instead of going, oh, whoa, 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 let's, let's calm down. Terry <laughs> was fantastic in saying, that's fantastic, that's, that's great, the chair, to break the chair. Mm. That's great. So we're going to need, we're going to need a lot of chairs that are very cheap to make. Out of <laughs> So it meant that we, we built on this. And I said, one of the tragic images that I want to have is this great warrior that descends to the point that he is a thug, that it's mindless violence to the, to the outside world. Hmm. And so we built it so that we, I just had a very simple top on. It was very easy to take it off. So you end up attack. You take the you take the top off like a football hooligan that I've seen on on those clips on those documentaries, goading the other side to come and have a go, mm. and and to see this king figure 
reduced, an a great warrior reduced to, to to shouting at a chair and then and then smashing the chair up so that you then get the the image of a man with his shirt off with a chair leg in his hand, mm. and it's like something from some ghastly on the terraces football violence, you know. Um, it was good. It was great. It sort of strikes like exactly what um, a sort of confluence there of sort of what you brought as an actor and what Terry brought as a director yeah. to like reduce him to that animal yes. survival instinct that Terry was talking about and for you to go into, I suppose, that dangerous other side of the character that seems to kind of constantly tempt him. Yeah, we did it twice. The first time we did it was in the Emlyn Williams, and it was, which is a small studio, and it was wonderful. And he he did it so that it was uh, theatre in the round, but it was square, and it was it it was sort of prescient, really, because this was nineteen ninety nine, and it was it was like one of those cages for ultimate fighting. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> and so this image of somebody with his shirt off and and with a leg of a chair, you know. It's really, it's not a very lyrical, <laughs> magic <laughs> image of of, uh, of Shakespeare. But it's, uh, you know, I believe that's what the play is about and that uncomfortable feeling. And, of course, his wife can't come near him by that point as well. I think mm. it's the last time you see them. Oh, no, 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 that's before because that's, he tells the, the murderers, he, he sets the murderers up and, and then she tries to reach to him to calm and to put a, face on it we've got what we wanted you know we're king and queen and yeah he's gone oh he's starting to go to the dark side side and he's longing for it you know and he's light thickens and the crow makes wing to the rookie wood yeah and, you know you can see it all and, and the good things of day begin to droop and drowse while night's black agents to their praise to rouse she looks at him and he says, "The marvels that my words, but hold thee still. Things bad begun make good themselves by ill. He knows that the way, you know, he has this logic now, the way out of this is we've, got, we've just got to do more. I've got to kill Banquo and I, that's in place. And anybody, the paranoia of it, the sort of stories of Stalin that you hear and mm. Hitler, you know, the obvious ones. And you think, wow, this gives such insight. Yeah. How people become these monsters. Yeah. Oh, God. Give me a comedy, quick. <laughs> yeah, there's laughter. Get back to Barry the Bear. Barry the Bear. Get back to Barry the Bear. He, he shares a lot with Macbeth, I think, Barry. He's got darkness in him. He's got darkness. He, he, he. <laughs> <laughs> He's got it in him. Yeah. Uh, Owen, thank you so much uh, for giving your time today and for talking so brilliantly and eloquently about the play. Yeah. Um, it makes you want to go back and read it immediately. I suppose in some ways, I'm, you know, it's just thinking about, God, it's, all, it's so front-ended about that decision. Whereas to me, like tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow is like, you know, pretty much I think the greatest bit of writing in the English language and that. That's where I fixate, but of course, in the sort of humanity of it, it's all in that initial decision and what that says to us about who we are. It seems... is. I think there's a structure with it as well that it, the, the early stuff he's speaking 
I believe when he's doing, you can speak to the audience. You, the soliloquy is 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 chewing over an idea with them. You know, mm. I do it, and if I did do it, it'd be better to do it quickly and get it over and done with, wouldn't it? What do you think? And and then and then he goes to his paranoia, so he, you know, the thought police are out there that it's sort of Orwellian. You know, anybody who thinks differently to me will be killed, will be got rid of. And by the end, by tomorrow and tomorrow, I don't think he gives a monkey's who's listening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he doesn't. He's not trying to communicate. He's just stating what to him is the bleeding obvious. And then there's one last sort of swan song of almost returning to being a warrior, saying, well, if I'm going to go, I'm going to take you all with me. Okay. I'm going to, you're going to take me. Well, let's, let's see. And that should be so scary to be in the same room in a theater with that feeling and who's going to take him. And, um, anyway, yeah. we didn't get on with so much more about whether the, you know, the supernatural element of the play and all that, but you'll have to come back for part two. You'll have to come back for part two. Joe, I've enjoyed it so much. I hope. Thank you for bearing with me there. Oh, it's brilliant. Oh, it's, it's just, it's so brilliant to hear uh, you talk yeah. about it. I mean, it feels, um, you know, we had uh, Michael yeah. Sheen on before talking about Hamlet and it's the same. You make them sound like new plays, like they've just been written. Yeah. Um, and that's the really exciting thing to hear, I think, is you're like, whoa, yeah, okay. I want to yeah. go back to this play. I want to see this play again. And, and it seems to be Shakespeare's unique power is to like, the plays always feel like they've just been written. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Yeah, you're right. Long may it continue. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. It was fantastic to chat. And um, I hope you have a good summer. And, and, and I look forward to seeing more Line of Duty soon. <laughs> well, yes. And I hope, you know, to meet you face to face. That'd be brilliant. Thanks thank so you. much. Thank you. Too. Owen Teal there, everybody. I just love Owen's story and how he has made his way. And I love the sense of mischief and anarchy that seems to accompany him everywhere he goes. Thanks so much for listening and continuing to support us, everyone. Until next time, go gently and go safely. The Old Vic would like to thank principal partner Royal Bank of Canada and the T.S. Eliot Estate for their support. Sherman Theatre would like to thank the Arts Council Wales and everybody who has supported us through this difficult time. <laughs>